With me on the podcast today, at the second attempt, is horror writer Dan Sewell. Dan, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having the patience to join me for a second time. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. Hopefully we'll do, maybe do a better job than the first time. <laughs> we had a dress rehearsal. Well, let me just explain the situation because I'm recording this in Spain and I'm in a, what's supposed to be a digital nomad room and I can hear the gurgling of the swimming pool to my right and every now and then to my left, I don't know what's going on in there. Uh, I think it's a changing room or a shower room or something, but you'll hear banging from that and the lifts are outside. Okay, so let's put our professional hats on and just try and grin and bear it, shall we? And see if we can get through. Perfect audio environment, yeah. <laughs> well, I've got, we've got a, right now outside of my window, I've got a kind of insulated shed in my backyard and uh, there are currently six veal uh, cows looking at me, <laughs> uh, chewing, chewing the cud. So they are, so they might move every so often. Well, that's okay. Well, so that's just to explain the situation. And I am in the least echoey room I could find. Okay. So just imagine what the most echoey room was that I could find. So we just, we'll have to work with it. Uh, but it won't, of course, diminish the quality of what Dan's got to say. Oh, no. So, <laughs> so let's oh, God help us. <laughs> I know what could possibly go wrong, Dan. What could go wrong? <laughs> right, so, except the, the last thing is the caretaker will come round and throw me out probably. That's what will happen. <laughs> okay. So first thing is then, can you tell us three things that we need to know about your life as an author, other than that you wish you weren't here right now? <laughs> yeah. no, that's not true. I'm more than happy to do it again. It was good fun last time. What better way to spend a Wednesday afternoon uh, or evening now? Um, okay, so... I suppose I am bootstrapping, in, as you would call it, I've heard you would call it that many times. So I have another career and I'm an academic writing trainer, I suppose is the best way to describe what I do. So I kind of go around universities all over Europe, UK, Ireland, and I teach research writers how to write their PhDs and their research papers and grant proposals more efficiently and eloquently. And that's the plan. And so I used to be a, an academic and a university lecturer and things like that. And you're a doctor too, aren't you? I mean, what are you doing roughing it on this show? Exactly. No. Yeah. Allegedly. Has <laughs> life yeah. really come to that, Dan? <laughs> I, have, I, I can legitimately put quite a few letters after my name, but I rarely do. And <laughs> I'm supposed to be able to be called doctor, but I never changed any of my stuff because it just gets you in trouble because you're not the right kind of doctor you, you wouldn't just have a quick look at this rash would you down while you're on that's right yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh so yeah i do that and then kind of on uh, but it's a nice business and i only have to work three days a week and my my wife just got promoted to consultant level so i'm just going to go down to two days a week next year um and so it, we moved over to northern ireland and we live on the beautiful antrim coast a little peninsula so I've got Belfast Lock on one side and Lawn Lock on the other side of us and um, from a horror point of view it's quite a good place to be because this is the home of the last witch ever to be tried in Britain or Ireland in the witch trials um, and her house still stands and stuff like that and she survived and um, so um, I do that and I write on the side and I'm about four novels in working on a fifth and a collection of children's books and I have about 30 short stories published and out in the world in various markets and stuff. Um, so basically I write more because I love it rather than it being, you know, that the roads were paved with gold. And <laughs> 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 so, yeah, I write because it's, a, I suppose, a passion that I came to 
um, fairly late in life. But like one of my other my other big passion outside of family and stuff, which is your obligatory answer, um, is um, martial arts. Uh, and we were talking about this last time. Uh, we'll say it again because no one else heard that conversation. Um, so uh, I have several black belts and have trained in martial arts for decades. And um, that's if you were to ask me two words that I was uh, to describe myself outside of being, you know, a dad and a husband and all that kind of stuff, um, I would say a martial artist and a writer because they're the things that I do habitually right there isn't a day I don't go by thinking about or practicing martial arts or working on some aspect of it if I was a if I was if I behaved religiously in the same way I'd be an extremely pious person right and the same goes for writing like it's something I just do habitually so whilst you know it's not my main source of income I probably take it as seriously as absolutely anything else that I do in my life and I try and apply myself um not just as a professional but just as as it's like an absolute passion and yeah my current genre is horror uh, although I'm thinking of floating and going into crime or kind of doing a bit more post-apocalyptic fiction which nicely overlaps with horror and stuff like that so those those would be my my three kind of Venn diagram overlapping things yeah yeah, of course, the disadvantage for you, Dan, with this being the second time we've recorded this interview, is you've got to listen to the same old bad jokes all over That's again right. Right. And, and pretend they're funny for a second time, which is, <laughs> which is quite hard work, isn't it? So there will be a martial arts gag coming up at some point. Yeah, uh, we just, look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to warn you of that, yeah. <laughs> so in terms of your, your writing journey today, then, were you one of these guys who like you know, came out of the womb and said, I must write? A classic, or, or did you come to it later in life? No, it came to it much, much later in life. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've listened to so many podcasts like everybody else, and 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 a very common thing, which is a lovely thing to hear, is that people feel that you know they almost popped out of the womb writing, and they're like, "Oh, darling, I've been writing since I was three, and I just used to staple pages together and write." Which I think is cool if that was you, and that's wonderful. But in all honesty, for me, um, as a child, I was profoundly dyslexic, and uh, really probably functionally illiterate, really in into my teens, nearly. Um, but I had very supportive parents, and my mum was an English teacher. My dad was probably dyslexic as well. Like, actually, all the males in our family, it's just <clears throat> my dad and my uncle and things were of a generation where that was, you know, you just kind of got on with things and you went to the secondary mod because you didn't get into the grammar school and yeah, you yeah. just muscled in and you got there in the end. Um, but yeah, yeah, <clears throat> they're all pretty dyslexic and my children all seem dyslexic as well. My daughter is. and Really? Must... That's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's very strong in my family. It's not like it's like the force that not. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, um, yeah, I got tested when I was nine because just because of my mum's pushy middle classness, and they were like, "No, no, it's just slow. You just have to accept you accept you've got a slow child." Yeah, so I used to say in my day, Dan. That's how that's yeah. how they yeah. used to explain it away when I was young. Yeah. That's right, and it might have been true as well. <laughs> but when, uh, it, but it was one of those things. I always kind of had a. Uh, I was always a loquacious child, uh, and had a, a kind of you know. I like to talk and uh, I was fairly loquacious in that way. So when they, when I was tested at nine, I, I kind of had the reading age of a five or six year old, somewhere around that. Um, but I had the vocab, so three years lower, but I had a vocabulary like three years advanced. So, you know, it's like a six year window deficit, like leap between my functional literacy 
I'm just barely scraping by. And then actually like while I, my oral competency and stuff like that. So that was really like characterized my school life all the way through. I really disliked school. Um, but I don't know. I liked other aspects of school, you know, not like the academic side of it necessarily, although I was really curious and I was a fairly well behaved boy. So that was all right. Just occasionally get frustrated. And I was always reasonable at sport and art and stuff. So those things worked. But my parents were really insistent that I didn't let the dyslexia dominate me. So in one of life's, because you know, life is not without a sense of irony and humour, lo and behold, I end up getting a PhD in linguistics. So, But give them to anybody then, apparently. Yeah, yeah, they, they, it just shows to show. They just <laughs> hand them out like candy. Um, so, yeah, I did a PhD about... Um, kind of language of national identity in election campaigns, particularly in Scotland. So it was all about, really, it was all about like storytelling as well, uh, like the kind of stories that people and identities people construct for themselves in politics. And and so I was very interested in all that kind of stuff and wrote a book, a book about that with a political scientist and some research papers. Um, so it was a kind of long, circuitous route to, to writing. A lot of my writing initially was academic, like really long, PhD, you know, doorstop, big enough to kill a badger type book uh, that no one reads. Um, and then some research papers and then, a, a, you know, another long, tedious monograph. So I had a lot of kind of writing chops in terms of I'd done a lot of writing. I knew how to get my, my butt in a chair and grind out a piece of work and <clears throat> doing a PhD or a research paper is very similar to writing a novel because it's like an, I always think of them both as intellectually creative endeavors when you start you don't know what the end is going to be like okay now some of the machinations and processes that go into them between those two ends obviously vary but they both involve different types of research and bringing something to life that didn't exist before so i found that those skills transferred really well and creative writing was something that i'd have tried every so often you know poetry and things like that and i have actually some of the first things probably i got published were maybe poems i've got a handful of poems out in the world but i'm no poet by any means um and um i probably tried to start writing a novel about three or four times like a lot of people but like the kind of person at a party that goes oh i've got a great idea for a story kind of thing and you and yeah you listen patiently right and it never ha- and it's never going to happen and they're never going to do it and you meet lots of people like that and it, it Again, it's not a criticism, it's just there's a big difference between having the idea and executing it. And I was that person for a long time. I'd get three or four chapters into a, a book and then it just run out of steam. So when I moved over to Northern Ireland about eight and a half years ago, I wasn't working full-time at a university anymore. I had much more spare time to myself and I just thought, oh, what would I like to do? I always thought about writing. Now, what, what would happen if I actually applied myself to that and found out how to do it? And so started just to read around about how to do that. And I'd read Stephen King's on writing during my PhD just to find out what a professional writer says that they do. It was one of the many things I wrote, read. Um, and so uh, he'd said, start writing short stories because there are, you know, there's markets out there. Even, well, when he wrote it, he was saying the Internet had killed short stories. And then by the time I'd come to it, it brought short stories back to life because there was loads of venues for it by that point. So, yeah, I just started writing lots and lots of short stories and wrote all kinds of things, literary fiction, wrote some sci-fi, some things, you know, kind of hard to place, but quite naturally fell into horror, just 
I didn't really even think of them as horror stories, but when I was trying to place them in magazines that pay for these kind of things, it was horror magazines that were taking them. And I go, oh, I guess I'm more comfortable writing horror. Like, you know, it wasn't by design. And then just did it more and more and more. I'd written a couple of children's novels, really more to find out how not to write a novel. Um, but one of them was pretty good and I tried to, or I felt was good. And I tried to get it out there and send it to lots of traditional publishers. And I didn't know any other route than that. Um, and that got lots of rejections. It got one agent that was reasonably interested and wanted a second reading and some rewrites. And I did that. And then they dropped it like a dead body, really. Uh, so, um, yeah, but that was great fun. I wrote those largely for my kids and stuff as well. And then I stumbled upon Joanna Pat and uh, um, by accident kind of came across a tweet of hers just because, you know, follow lots of writers on Twitter years ago. And um, thought, oh, she was running a course in London. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting, but I can't, can't make it. And then, you know, it's like those things you see a name again a month later and you go, what's this about? And she's got a podcast. I thought, oh, I know that name. I'll listen to this podcast. This sounds interesting. That's funny that her name is Penn with a double N and she's a writer. Uh, so I had a listen and then I was hooked. I was like, indie publishing. I'd never heard of this thing. I was aware of a Kindle, right? And I had no, and of course, coming in via her, uh, by Joanna, and then getting into various other podcasts like, you know, Mark Dawson and James Blatches, and then Blackley podcasts like yours and Sasha Black's and, you know, um, the Ask Allied ones and all those great ones that are out there. Um, just really, oh, I could do this. I could do this. would be fantastic. And I've been writing all these stories. Why don't I write a horror novel and really go for it? So, yeah, no, I didn't come out of the womb writing. That was my circuitous answer. <laughs> no, that's fine. So you've written the books, and as we all learn pretty quickly, the, writing the books, the easy bit, you've got to sell the blast of things next. So how did you, having discovered independent writing, incidentally, I went to that event of Joanna Penn's in London. We could, yeah. we could have met all those years ago. So, we yeah, could have. It was oh, a really good ship, event too. Ships in the night. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and um, I could have made those martial arts jokes like five years Just ago. Then. <laughs> They never get old. Um, yeah, no, never do. How did you make the first sales and how did you get the money coming in for the books? Yeah, okay. So, well, money coming in, yeah, it's flooding. It's just, I need to get a bigger house just to keep it all. Um, okay, so I suppose I've been going now for about, what months are we in? I, my first book came out in January 2020. And that was a book called Neolithica. Um, and I suppose I'd really been, because I'd been listening to all, all the kind of, you know, the big indie author podcasts before then, I'd already built my website. I'd already got um, a reader magnet um, of previously published short stories. So I thought they were, you know, these are getting pro and semi-pro kind of payment for them in magazines. That, and they were out of copyright now for the magazine, so I could republish them myself. So I had Nick Stevenson's idea for a permafree on um, Amazon and actually wide uh, and it's still uh, wide at the moment and um, I've subsequently changed that to make it not um, free because I follow your thinking Paul that it should free doesn't always garner the best intentioned readers um, or the not the frame of mind you know that's the idea that if something's free are, are they invested in it kind of thing um, so I built that and I built a mailing list I was on MailChimp at the start and uh, using uh, story origin to try and build build that kind of um, list out there. 
And so when I launched, I probably, I don't know, I didn't have a big list, but it's probably about 350 people. It's tiny, but it was enough to get some sales because those were probably people that had genuinely come to me having read my stuff and quite liked it. So those were really where the first sales came from. And then a little bit of like getting some all right reviews on different places. Um, And after that, I didn't, I held off on doing paid advertising for a long while. So I ran some of the kind of, you know, bargain booksy type things, book doggy, a few of the other ones that kind of get sales. But again, they're not really scalable options, are they? I found that they were quite good for getting a top 10 or a number one in a particularly chosen category, which was nice to get, where you do it free and, you know, you get the top in the free chart, which is lovely to get in their little milestones, but it's not any sales. Um, and I, I've always kind of thought of this that I was probably going to need more books because everyone was saying you need a series or you need a big back catalog. So I started advertising. I brought my second book out in March, just before the pandemic. Wrote the third novel (laughs) at the start of the pandemic. So kind of June, July time, I had a third book and I started doing paid advertising with Amazon and then Facebook about three or four months after that. And I would say um, I had marginal success with that. Probably at best was making marginal profits, maybe like 20, 25% return on investment at best, maybe 50 at absolute if you chose your day correctly. <laughs> uh, but I would think probably most of all what it was doing was was pay, uh, was breaking even. The thing that really did work is I was incredibly lucky and in the start of December, I got a book bub featured deal on a three book box set. Well done, good, yeah. Yeah, so totally lucky because it was just on Amazon. But... I think whatever it costs, like £300 or whatever it's $350 or something. And it made me about £750, I think, on the day. And I suspect long-term sales has probably yielded me over £1,000 on that book bulb. And that's in horror. So I'd say, like, if you're outgoing is about 300 350 and you've made 700 profit on top of that, you just can't can't beat a book bub. I've had yeah. one since, so I just keep firing it. And I just I actually had two rejections for it last. Keep, uh, keep going, just keep going. Exactly. Keep, keep, yeah. going. Don't be keep firing them in. I'll do a free one. I haven't done a free one, which I think would be a nice one to do as well. Um, so yeah, like I, I tried those things out. I really, uh, I've even tried Twitter ads. And you and I had a, a, a kind of back and forth a while. We were both experiment with those, and I love like the kind of way that. Twitter seems to deliver really well. The ads interface is really nice. It's quite easy to use. The feedback, the data is really good. And the clicks are super cheap, but there's no conversion. It's just It's unbelievable, isn't it? How could you get that much traffic or that much interest and no sales, for goodness sake? No sales. So I haven't tried it for driving it, say, to – I've heard that it's better for driving it to, like, content. Like, so if you've got a – a, a podcast or a blog post you could get a lot of traffic that way and you might get people into your funnel in a more kind of secondary way that like that um and you build you know seo and all that kind of stuff maybe maybe there's some use in it in terms of because it's so cheap i think there might be an argument for it to be run it almost like brand awareness the people see you, they're one of the seven touches of advertising. And if you're getting one pence a click, I was even getting free clicks, like basically like 0.01 pence for video clicks. Yeah. They were really well on Twitter. And I was kind of like, 
I'm paying money for this. It's not really, it's costing me a couple of pounds a day, so I'm not bothered about it. And I kind of ran it like awareness. But interestingly, even doing it on a five book, I've got a five book box set that I give away for free on my site. It's like two anthologies of my previously published short stories, plus three horror classics that are out of copyright. So I give away an ebook of Dracula, Frankenstein, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's one of my little tweaks that there's some public domain works that work in your genre and if you're looking to bulk something out you could give away some classics along with your own work and um, i think there could be some disadvantages to that but even giving that five book box set away where you think it's a no-brainer right no conversion from twitter so um yeah that's kind of where i'm at at the moment um i've kind of rested the ads at the moment i'm doing a pulse thing where i about every fortnight switch on facebook ads for about four days and then switch them off again, and you see a spike, and then a little bit of a long tail. And that's a tip I picked up from Lee Mountford that he he basically he um, pulses his Facebook ads and rotates them through, and he kind of does a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday big push, and then he lets them long tail out, um, and he does the same just for like I think two to three days a week he runs his ads, and then he like lets them um, just have a kind of lag effect, which just seemed to to be the case. Um, but even when I, I kind of switched off my ads for a month for an experiment and it had like a long tail to it, like there was obviously still read through and still, I don't know how people were still coming to the books, but they were, whether it was just visibility on Amazon and then that seems to trail off and you need to feed the beast. What about reviews? How, how are you guessing reviews? So initially it was, again, mailing list drove that and I was kind of trying to do the textbook thing and I still do, which is, you know, Build, you know, read Newsletter Ninja and Nick Stevenson's course on your first 10, uh, 10K readers and all that kind of stuff. But try and build a, a really good relationship with the people I do have on my list. So I regularly clean my list out. So um, I've no interest in having people on the list that don't open emails. And, 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 and from my end, I want to deliver value. That's why I listened to a great internet marketing podcast called The Email Marketing Show. Um, and it's run by a couple of British guys. They're it's really upbeat and they're more for small course creators, but so much of it is applicable to what we would do. Um, and they're so slick on their copy and like, but the show is full of tips, but they've got a really good show in the back catalog called Seven Ways to Add Value. And that was a brilliant podcast for me because it was, yeah, the, it kind of led me to this idea of trying to create win-win-win situations. So you, you want, if you're doing something, you want you want to be benefiting from it, mm. but you also you don't want it to be narcissistic and kind of shystery and use car sales money where you're just looking to get people's money. I'm not. That's obviously like a thing you want to do, and you don't have sales doesn't have to be sleazy. Like you, if you're creating a nice product, like it's almost your duty to get it out into the world and try and find the right customers for it, the right readers for it. I don't think that's a bad thing to do. That's sort of largely where our economy is and our society is built around that concept. And there can be, you know, huge amounts of value and, and uplift in, in that to people. And, and I, and I strongly believe that, but you don't, I don't want to be the used car salesman. So I want to like add value in other ways. So if I can do a thing that also genuinely serves my readers, so through my newsletter, but if I could also serve the wider horror writing community, so I often do things like on my blog and on my newsletter, you know, I love promoting other authors. It's a great thing to do. I love promoting. And also I think it creates a culture of 
not everything's free. Here's sometimes a free book. Here's sometimes a book that's on promotion. Here's sometimes a full price talk that someone's delivering. There's the whole smorgasbord of it. And I do stuff like, I really enjoyed this movie. I watched it recently. It's Netflix and chill section on my, uh, on my newsletter or a podcast that I have really enjoyed. Or um, this is what I'm reading at the moment and I love it. Or, and I do interviews with authors as well. So I do really regular interviews with other horror, horror authors and horror creatives. So I want to kind of have this virtuous circle. Now, I don't expect everyone that I cross-promote or do an interview for. Actually, I have fairly low expectations that they will reciprocate, but some will. And even if it's at a lower level that you've created a kind of positive environment and you're a kind of guy that helps people and stuff, that's going to help, you know, they're more likely to retweet a thing or put a mention in your newsletter in the end. And that led to a lot of those early reviews is just having hopefully readers that if they've read it and they're positively predisposed to it, you've got your ARC team and then you've got other people that, that come in after that. Then the, the main driver for reviews now is probably, um, well, I had a permafree uh, that I said earlier, but it's not a permafree now called, it's a free book called In Tooth and Claw, but it's now one ninety nine or something. And that just got over 100 reviews. So that was a bit of a landmark that crapped over. That. Yeah, yeah I hadn't even noticed that. And then my first book, so it's about being out about 18 months and it's just hit 60 reviews. Yeah, these are good numbers. You said it's yeah. so, it takes so long to get reviews. It's... It, takes, it takes a long time. And the thing that was that was driving that, and you can see the kind of read-through, is Facebook ads. I started really going for Facebook ads for about three months and just playing around with them, optimizing them. You and I had had a chat on Twitter previously about a, a podcast that was about the uh, Facebook uh, ads expert and how she refined her copy down and stuff. So I followed her formula of like testing different lengths copies, testing pictures, and only swapping one thing out at a time. Then testing, you know, kind of um, subject lines and then buttons and refining down until you get performing ads that work really well. You split test them effectively. Um, and so I ended up with a nice set of um, performing ads that were reasonably low cost. And so I could run those and they were probably breaking even. But the side kind of benefit from them is that, like, yeah, if you get hundreds of people reading your books and it's a 99 cent deal, <clears throat> you're probably going to get one in 100, one in every 200 are going to leave a review. And so it slowly crept up to from about 20 that I managed to get myself, um, which I, another thing I did for that was going through like building relationships with blogs and reviewers, good good reviewers who leave honest reviews. Um, and so I've got a kind of small cohort of those that I send books to, and they're usually pretty reliable for reviews. So you get four or five out of that. And then um, that's a long-term plan to slowly build that list um, over the long term. And I know you've used like Sage Reviews as a way of like doing a very similar thing for Thriller and stuff, you know. So, um but yeah, and then I can see like the other books have a long tail as well. Like more more people come to them through read through. But I think my read through is about 30, 35%. But I'm not writing in a series at the moment. And that's that's kind of one of my goal, more of my goals for the future is I have one book that genuinely is the start of probably a five book series. So I need to get on my horse and write that. Those are the four books. <laughs> Let's talk about your favorite tools then as an indie author. What makes your life easier? when you're writing um <clears throat> probably um top of my list would be pro writing aid as a just a fantastic editing tool it really plays into my kind of linguistics head as well 
Do you know what? I don't get on with Pryrat again. I hear really? so many people. Yeah, to the extent that I hear so many people enthused about it that I think I must have been using it upside down or something. You know, I, I just must have got it wrong. Because what do you so like about it? Well, I tell you what annoys me most about it and why I won't even engage is because I can't apply it to a whole document. It, it, um, if you put it to a whole book, it won't cope with the whole book. So I won't entertain it. When I've, when I've written a book and I need it checking, I will not entertain it if it won't let me do a whole book, if I have to split it out into sections. So that's really where, where, where it kills me dead. Yeah, it's, it's good. You're right, up to about 10,000 words. It probably works better if you just do a couple of chapters at a time. It's probably quite a good tool if you're a kind of person that likes to write, say, in the morning and edit in the afternoon. Or if you use the web, um, it's, I like it because it's very flexible. You can have it as a plugin for Word. You can have it as an app on your desktop, or you can run it through the browser. And if you run it through, and you can also have it as a browser plugin. So it's like, in a limited sense, working over the top of Chrome or working over the top of Evernote or something, or your emails. But you can, if you write in the web editor, you get the full functionality of it. And if you almost use that as a first draft place to write, um, and you get a lot of feedback there and then, and then transition it to another document. If you're looking for one that probably works, the best one that I found that works over a whole document, because this is something I do with a lot of PhD writers, um, is one called smart-edit. So if you go to smart-edit.com, it's a and it's for PCs. doesn't work, doesn't work on Macs. They've actually got a really nice free, um, uh, like online writing tool. It's a, it's a bit like Scrivener, and it's quite good for planning. And it's uh, a very nice writing clean inter clean writing interface. But their their smart edit tool plugs into Word beautifully, and will do as long a document as you need. And so, and it's very good on things like picking out homophone mistakes. It lists every repetition that you do, either repeated word or repeated phrase. It'll tell you your most used word in the document and put them in rank order, like chronological, you know, most frequent order. Same with like phrases. It'll, um, it's got some grammar and stuff check, uh, to check as well. The thing that I think limits ones like that is that it doesn't necessarily tell you why it's a mistake so they will say this is a potential homophone confusion right if it's form and from where well, you can you can see that by just having your attention drawn to it but if you what if it's further or farther do you know the grammatical rule of whether it's ar or you are so if you don't know that knowledge you'll have to go and look it up right um you know if it's it past past or past right so again you're gonna have to look that up if you don't know the rule um commas are a kind of more difficult one again you know there's 12 basic uses of a comma in standard english four uses of a colon three uses of a semicolon they combine together in very specific ways and if you don't know that stuff how you know if i said what are the 12 basic uses of a comma you'd be like um <laughs> you know probably fairly intuitively you use them you know and but like you know you could have certain types of sentences like you know it was cold in here comma and she closed the window right that's one use. You've got to use it because you've got two main clauses separated by coordinated conjunction, right? But what if it's, you could also punctuate that as it was cold in here, semicolon, she closed the window. And the semicolon obviously infers a semantic relationship of causation between the two things. That's one of the grammatical, uh, semantic grammatical uses of a semicolon. Or you could write it as it was cold in here, full stop, she closed the window, right? And they're all grammatically correct. Which one is the one that you want to use? And so certain tools aren't going to tell you whether or not to do that. Anyway, I've gone off on a tangent. Got me going on punctuation. I'm out of my league here. I think I'll yeah. get me 
this is this is this is this. Listen to the quality we get on this show. No, just listen, listen. Everyone's falling asleep. You started talking about grammar. We lost half the. We lost four of the eight listeners. Uh, uh, come back. But pro writing aid for me is it's a linguistics dream, linguist dream because it it does a comparative thing where it compares you both to. Um, someone uh, the average writer in your area and an exemplar so now it, it has subdivisions like it does all different genres of writing business letters emails academic um, but for fiction you've got romance horror thriller children's middle grade you know you've got loads of different genres so I can go and pick horror for example and then like I'm getting such amazing information because I can compare everything from like sentence length distribution to the average horror writer or to Peter Schwab or who, whichever exemplar it compares me against. So I can say, I've got say 38% of my sentences are under, you know, or between zero and 10 words or something. How does that compare to someone else? Right. It can tell me the percentage of passive voice. So it's passive voice is neither right nor wrong. Right. I can tell you that as a kind of descriptivist linguist, right. It just is what, controls it is your readership's familiarity with passive voice so academics write a lot more in passive voice and they're much more used to it and they do it for very specific reasons but we should have less than 25 percent of our document in a passive voice and the lower probably the better how much does what you do conform to the mean but then how does it conform to an exemplar so just pro writing it gives you so much detail like and and also as an editor, it teaches you a lot of good things about your writing. Like you become aware of your ticks. Um, so I found like I had lots of like repeated words that I often do, and it could be like just using was more, or it could be, you know, you like the word interesting or something like that. It could be any word at all, couldn't it? Um, we have these proclivities, but you start to become aware of them. And I found myself it's trained me out of using them a lot. But you can go into such detail on it; it really is incredible. Like. You, um, it will recommend that you remove was from the last 10,000 words six times to kind of bring the average down to make you more like someone else in your genre. Yeah. Um, it's not eliminating your own voice. So people might go, oh, darling, but, you know, I've got a special voice and I'd like to use, you know, overuse the infin infinitive verb, right? And you go, that might be true. And if you're doing it for a very specific reason, pro writing, it doesn't force you to change it. It's just making, giving you comparative information. And that's what, makes it so informative is that you it's not an it's not an arbitrary rule that's been opposed imposed on you which i think grammarly does a lot more right grammarly will say well you know you're using passive voice too much we'll probably do it in american accent because that's what all the ads do right you know oh you shouldn't split infinitives and things like that when i went through my phase of trying these i used autocrit mm. and grammarly. i used to give it a light run through both mm. in the end i decided i didn't really like them and i tried pro writing i have fed back to them about the whole document thing and said mm. look no deal for me unless it's whole doc mm. i haven't got the patience to split it all up yeah. so but um yeah I, I i'm not sure i like them uh yeah i you know it's i just i sort of feel but what about dan sill's voice I, yeah yeah that, i want to hear your voice i mean I, I feel it doesn't stop me doing that i feel like it gives me parameters just to kind of think like genre think about what genre is is like there's no such thing as complete freedom. And I kind of hear the, the voice of my old philosophy professor in my back of my mind here. You know, you're like, freedom from what? Absolute freedom is tyranny. It's tyranny of the individual and the self, right? 
Uh, so it's like, you know, you, you write in for an audience, an audience has expectations. That's all genre is. And it's like, to what extent? So it's a set of, you know, implicit parameters and all that something like pro writing in especially does is like make those more explicit so that you can operate between them. There's still a huge amount of flexibility to choose your own path and it's still going to be you, you know. Uh, you're just going to be making you more aware of like, oh, I do do that a lot. Do I want to do it that much? You know, do I really want to use that word that much? I have used it quite a lot. So, yeah, I mean, I find it a, a really nice tool and it kind of informs my writing a lot. I find it very, very useful and very intuitive. But, you know, horses for courses, as they well, say. Well, I, w- I wish I did like it because I could be an affiliate for it then, you see. But I only I only affiliate for stuff that I could endorse. That's mm. a shame, you see. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so maybe one of these days. But um, no, I have got my eye on it because you know I can see how many people like it, mm. and, and you know, and obviously, obviously, it's a good thing. It just doesn't suit me. Personally. Yeah, that isn't a Teague recommendation. Ignore what I say. You know, <laughs> to what Dan and everybody else says on yeah. that one. Um, what about I would put it with the psychologist chair now? In, in terms of your writing life, what should you be doing more of, and what should you be doing a little bit less of? On one level, nothing, because. I always ask myself, am I having fun, right? And I want, I do this because, like I said at the start, I really like doing it. And you just find yourself doing it habitually and working on doing it better. And any kind of complex, um, challenging activity that becomes absorbing for those reasons. So if you can love it for the act of doing it itself, like, no, doesn't matter if you get a bad review no one can ever hurt you for that because you know primarily I write the stories that I wish someone had written for me you know uh, and I just my assumption is that there is some other schmuck in the world that's like me like I'm not so different from other people there's bound to be a bunch of other similar dams in the world that have a similar kind of taste you know similar palette if I can find who those people are that would be wonderful right so on that level I would say nothing but on the business level <laughs> Definitely, I am aware, like, a series is an essential thing to have. So I want to finish this series called The Ash, which is a kind of post-apocalyptic one. And I wrote the first in the series thinking, I want to write an homage, in a way, to the movies that I grew up on. I was the kid that was always down at the video store when we had those things every Friday night, getting out three videos for the weekend, and I watched everything. You know, my parents were various back in the obviously the 80s and 90s. My parents were very, very relaxed about what I could watch as long as, you know, they had an overview of it and I understood what I was watching and why I was watching it. And they kind of saw film as a art form as well. Not necessarily all the things I watched, but I was the kid that, watched, you know, had watched all the Quentin Tarantino movies and introduced my friends to Reservoir Dogs and, I'd watched the Kirakurasawa and, you know, then watched all the spaghetti westerns and knew, you know, how Yoyimbo was, um, you know, Last Man Standing and A Fistful of Dollars and how there's these kind of like these connections and these run-throughs and stuff across world cinema. So I was that kind of like, dude, probably because I couldn't read very well, so I watched lots of movies, right? Mm. Um, And I, I love the thing. I love Predator. Or you put Arnold Schwarzenegger in anything for me, I'm probably going to watch it because I'm just that age, right? Yeah, yeah, um, I love Aliens. You know, Sigourney Weaver was definitely my first crush and probably for most of my life, right? You put Sigourney Weaver in anything now, I'm still going to watch it. But Aliens, Alien, all that kind of uh, Enemy Mine, if you remember any of those. So I wanted to kind of um, outland, if, outland, if you remember that, with Sean Connery. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> being the sheriff in space. Yeah. 
um so we had we had all that and um i wanted to write that homage to that and so as i was planning that i was like this is one book but i can see what the next four books after this the trajectory of it is and so i'm I kind of like right they're in the bag i kind of know i want to write those so a series is what i need to do and then i think i'm seriously thinking about possibly writing a kind of crime as well in the long term like think i'm doing a lot of lot of reading if we had the video on for this you can actually see right behind me i've got a stack of books and they're all um forensics <laughs> and ple- and about blood spatter um and memoirs of famous pathologists in the uk so i'm currently reading val mcdermott the british um and scottish crime writer um, and she's got a fantastic book on forensics. It's brilliant. So you're going procedural, are you? That's very brave. I intentionally avoid all that stuff. Well, so I don't have to do the research. Maybe it's very early days at the moment. And uh, but it's a great, you know, where you, where you base it. I think it's it's a great um, it's a great salad, right? And I love those series. You know, Unforgotten is my favourite police um, series. Yeah, and you know, the last podcast you were talking about. Um, uh, the writer and his Chris Lang, Lang. yeah, Chris Lang. And so you know, looking at those scripts, but I love that series and uh, kind of the noir end of it. I think you know, ITV in the UK are probably right do the best, the best uh, police procedures. They're absolutely fantastic. So they're I love good, all that. They're, yeah, they're good. They do really great stuff, and um, and you obviously the Bay and everything is really popular and stuff like that. And the Fall, Northern Ireland, what the first series of the Fall was good. The second series was pretty bad. Um, but again, it had Gillian Anderson in, and I'm a boy of the '90s and remember yeah, the X Files, so I'm watching that. Um, yeah, so so series, and I think some kind of procedural there. There's a, a possibility I might have a, a kind of collaborate collaboration in the works, and maybe like co-author on on the crime front. But I'm certainly interested in that, and I think like long term, that's I'll still write standalones. I think certain books are just standalones, but long term series possibly collaborations if you can find good ones but you know you've talked in the past how they can be great but they can also be hard work and and things like that so i'm kind of open to that but definitely series brilliant okay so what about your go-to sources for tips and information about writing you know, i'm thinking about podcasts books blogs the sort of things that have been influential for you yeah, probably not anything like out of the ordinary here. Obviously, self-publishing journeys at the top. <laughs> no, it is genuinely like the the my favourite writing podcast that I'd never miss an episode. So thank you, Paul, for this. And I probably... It's finishing, I'm telling you. It's finishing. Well, this is what I wanted to say on behalf, probably, I'm assuming, the mantle of lots of listeners to say, don't go. And if you are going... Thanks very much for all the tips and advice. And it's, it is a back catalogue and everything that we've got. But it genuinely is like all the trials and the tribulations and the detail that you give has been super helpful. So this podcast has always been at the top. So I'll probably fall down the list once you've disappeared. And... But, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Not in a week. Don't worry. You're right, is it? Who? Paul who? <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> became him. Yeah. Do you remember that guy? Yeah. Paul Taig? Was it Taig? How do you pronounce well, that name? Stacking shelves <laughs> in a supermarket now, I hear. <laughs> so, yeah, your podcast, um, <laughs> the, the Creative Pen, I think. I love Joanna's um, deep dives and the way she goes off on stuff on Joanna, like I know her first, first name terms. And yeah, her stuff on AI, I think, is amazing the way she has a kind of 
big picture view as well, but always comes back to like business fundamentals and stuff. And she does great stuff on the psychology of it. You know, she, the mental health ones are always fascinating, I think, which is not something I'm very lucky not to suffer from, from any, any real mental health difficulties. But I love those ones. You know, Michael Brent Collins interview mm. on there was, was, was amazing. And she's done some others where authors have talked about mental health. And, uh, you know, it's always a, you know, you, you think you've got problems and you listen to someone who's, who's really struggling with stuff and still, you know, getting through life and making stuff happen. That's always an inspirational. Um, and, and so many other things, there's just some great topics that come up. And even if I'm not that interested in the guests quite often on, I like, like with your roundups, I like hearing Joanna Penn's personal roundups of what she's currently doing in her, in her career. And, you know, she's, I'm not wide, but she's wide and talks about that. And, um, yeah, and she's quite organic as well, like goes with what she feels like she wants to write. And, yeah, it's great. Um, self-publishing show, again, I prefer, often prefer the the, the intros when it's just um, um, Mark and James and uh, Mark picking on James. And I think they do the nice shtick quite well. I like that. I like that. Uh, and I like James. It's like, you know, constantly just getting beaten for taking so long to write a novel and being so honest <laughs> about it. But he plays the stooge as well. Like, and he, you know, he, play, or he plays the whipping boy really well because he's he, ov- he obviously asks the questions sometimes that he already knows the answer to, but he's going to let Mark take the mickey out of him. You're both similar in that kind of BBC training that just good interviewing skills and can get the best out of people i find that and james is so good at doing that he's a really good interviewer um so i really i really enjoy um his interviewing style and again like not i might not listen to every single guest um it just depends but sometimes you try them out and you you hear someone like i think they had someone who was a romance writer and i had no interest in romance writing Com- comedy romance they were so fascinating you know, you, you sometimes hear someone in a completely different genre and you'll pick up some tips or some ideas, which are, which are great. Um, another one I like just for listening to writers, actually, is um, this podcast has been going about a year, but it's called Talking Scared. Uh, and it's run by Neil McRobert, um, who's also a, a kind of former academic like myself, but he's writing a horror novel at the moment. But he's he's done lots of reviews for things like um, The Guardian and... Uh, london review of books and stuff so he's quite known in that circle so he's got the most amazing guests on there like max brooks who wrote world war z and devolution he's had paul tremblay you know head full of ghosts and um uh what was his other one he wrote about a pandemic that i've just finished reading anyway so many like top names he's had on so like and he's a brilliant interviewer he's very insightful he's very well read um and really drills down into like what authors are thinking and stuff. So if you're looking for one, like just authors talking, that's probably one of the best I've heard on that email marketing show podcast is just really good on, which I mentioned before paid resources, Nick Stevenson's and self-publishing formula have all those courses, which I see as an investment in the future because they're not cheap. Right. And that's the thing I think that we don't talk about that. If you get in those kind of ecosystems and those sales funnels, to be honest, self-publishing is a very democratic task, but it is also very expensive. You know, producing a book is not is not peanuts, you know, and doing it well, like book covers, editing, all that kind of stuff can, can amount to a lot. And I love the way the self-publishing formula has the, you know, the um, foundation to help writers that don't have a, a lot of money to kind of do that. But, you know, I think 
the barrier to entry is still fairly high. You know, it's not cheap. But their courses are fantastic. There'll be an investment in the future. I think there's a lot of de rich detail in those. Um, I think if you were to choose one, I'd probably go for Nick Stevenson's, actually. Um, I think he's a great communicator. I think he structures information really well. I think if you get the first 10K readers one, and it, it occasionally runs it with the Facebook um, ads included, if you can get that package together, that's a really powerful package. Amazon and everything feels like it would come later. You know, Facebook's probably the one where if you've got a good Facebook course, I think the way Nick explains Facebook and gets you set up quickly, for me, like that, those are the ones I kind of go back to again and again. I don't, Mark maybe drills down into a lot more detail, um, but if you're starting off, Nick's such a good explainer about things and kind of giving you numbers, yeah. And then the last resource is peers, you know, picking the brains of people like yourself, um, you know, that's one use for Twitter, you know, is, is meeting people and uh, exchanging ideas and trying to be generous with whatever you're finding yourself. And I've had some very useful conversations recently with a couple of colleagues um, and they've been very open about what works for them on their marketing. And I've shown them what's working and not working for me. And again, that, that they're hugely valuable. And I know you've paid for some consultancy and I've certainly thought that that's a, that's a way I'd like to probably go once I've got enough books and you can get the value added out of that for sure. You often get what you pay for or, what you invest in in terms of building relationships and networks, yeah. The last thing you get to do then is to give yourself a plug and let us know where we can find out all about you and find out about your books. Well, you can find about, out about me at www.dansoul.com uh, and uh, pick up five free books if you want. Um, and if you don't, that's fine. There's some. It's a blog with lots of author interviews and various other pieces of advice on there. I've got a plan to write more about being an indie author as well i've got one post on that at the moment which is just the um uh it's called the uh, independent authors manifesto and it's about 10 or 12 points about things that i feel that i try and do as an independent author and what it means and so <clears throat> it's quite a catchy post some of that might resonate with with um listeners um and i've also uh, I'm, I'm right at dan Saul on all the socials so facebook twitter instagram I mean, I'm not sure what the value of Instagram is really. Um, but um, Twitter, I find, is one of the best places to network as an author. So you can always <clears throat> say hi or connect on Twitter or Facebook. Yeah. Dan, it's been great to speak to you again. It was just <laughs> as interesting second time around. Thank you for making the time. My pleasure.